You're listening to the Jazz Session with my dad, Jason Crane. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 362. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. You'll find them at respectsextet.com. Please buy their albums. Thanks to Dave Rabel for designing the show's logo. He's at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz has a widget for the show. Go to allaboutjazz.com and type in Jazz Session Widget, and you can put a little box on your website that displays the latest episode. If you do that, let me know, because I'll mention you in my newsletter, which you can get by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on the mailing list link at the top of the page. Please join the show for as little as 10 bucks a month. It's a great way to ensure that the Jazz Session will keep coming to you for far into the future. I'm not really sure that sentence actually held together, but I think you all know what I was trying to say anyway. If you are on iTunes, if that's how you listen to the show, please take a second to review the show in iTunes, and thanks to those of you who've already done that. It just helps the show move up in the rankings. If you give it a good rating, a good star rating, uh, five is the best you can give it. And then if you put a nice review, it just helps the show kind of move up in the rankings, and that makes it more likely other people will see it. I have another blog in addition to uh, thejazzsession.com. I have a blog at jasoncrane.org where I post mostly my poetry. You can also get my book there, Unexpected Sunlight, in the store. I think it's I, – I never know. I think it's $14, but it could be 16 But either way. Today's guest is the saxophonist Patrick Cornelius. Uh, he's actually been on the show one time before. This is his second appearance. <laughs> I think you could have done the math on your own. He's got a new album on Positone called Maybe Steps. We'll hear something from that and then my conversation with Patrick. Thank you. 
My guest uh, for the second time, it's great to have you back, is Patrick Cornelius, who's got a new album called Maybe Steps on Positone. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back again. So uh, I was listening back in, in preparing for this interview to the last time you were on. Oh, sure. And it was for a trio record called Fierce. And at that time, we talked about, okay, so what is it about the trio that you found you you know was was grabbing you and therefore the the trio record mm-hmm. and so now we have a record with a a full band again and i guess i could turn the tables and just say what were you hearing this time or what were you writing that seemed like it needed more to flesh it out or was it always your intention to have a larger band and you wrote toward that end well yeah i mean i i really conceptually think of uh maybe steps as a continuation of the the book of material that i did on my first album lucid sure. dream and many of the tunes actually were written during that time, which is around 2005, 2006. So some of them are quite old. Um, when I decided I wanted to do Fierce, uh, I had been listening to some specific albums and it sort of got me into frame, uh, a frame of mind like, man, I'd really like to do an album without chords. And so I took a break from everything else I was working on and wrote that music specifically for that orchestration. So, you know, then I had this other book of tunes already, so you know the guys at Positone uh, were were nice enough to bring me to the studio, and um, you know I pulled them out and we did them. It's interesting because not only did you go back to chords, but you have both piano and guitar on the right. on the record. So I'm wondering what that what that was like in terms of kind of uh, delineating the harmony, uh, leaving open space, which you described in the previous. Okay, well, uh, the guitarist Miles Okazaki is actually functioning almost exclusively as a horn player sure. on Maybe Steps. Um, he's not really uh, be, uh, playing a rhythm section role, um, which he can't do very well. Just It didn't happen this way. And um, it was sort of a matter of circumstance, actually, because on my first – actually, on, on the last two albums, I, I, pl- I one of my closest musical collaborators is a, a trombonist slash trumpet player slash vocalist named Nick Vianos. And uh, he was on my first two albums, and um, he's also a sideman with the infamously famous, infamously famous, uh, Michael Bublé, and uh, he was on the road. And so I thought, like, do I really just want to get another trombone player to do this album? Uh, because it was a, a really difficult uh, thing to do to schedule this session between Kendrick's schedule and Gerald's schedule, and then bringing Mark Free from Positone into New York and and having everything go down. Um, I. Uh, I decided it was more important for me to get somebody who was familiar with my music and who I had good musical chemistry with. And I had been working with uh, Miles Okazaki uh, as part of the uh, Juilliard Artist Diploma Diploma Program. We were in that together, and we played so much together and did a lot of touring together. And it turns out that he had been playing a lot of the same music. So I said, you know what? I don't really need this to be trombone. I just need to get the right cat. So I called Miles, and he came in, and he did a great job. So is it in, is there something about having a a foil in in the front line, for lack of a better word, that you find brings something out of your playing? Is that why you were looking for someone to fill that role that Nick filled previously? Well, the thing is, as I said before, a lot of this music was written in 2005, 2006, when I was doing a lot of gigs with Nick in the front line. Sure. So the music was written pretty explicitly for uh, quintet. I mean, the quintet tunes were. I mean, a lot of my tunes that are written for larger ensembles, it's difficult to reduce them. Uh, because I tend to like to write uh, two horn front lines uh, melodies sort of, you know, uh, interdependent of each other. So if you just reduce, if you just take away the, the, so the, the lower voice, then I find the tune's missing a lot. Like, for example, there's a tune called Echoes of Summer. I would never play that without another horn in the front line because it just miss, you know, not having that particular part in there uh, takes away from the, the whole vibe of the tune. 
just thinking back to a lot of the interviews that I've conducted on the show, there are, it seems to be reasonably evenly split between people who write kind of musical ideas and then figure out who's going to play them versus the other side, you know, which is the, I know exactly these people are going to play it or this instrumentation, and so I write. Well, it's a little that. bit of it's a little bit of both actually, because I did write these tunes for Nick and I to play together, and uh, and I did write, you know, as I said, I wrote some of these tunes. Half of the tunes about uh, I wrote when I was in school at um, Manhattan School of Music a long time ago. Gosh, I've been in a lot of school, um, <laughs> and I happened to be in, in an ensemble with Gerald Clayton at the time, and so I, I wrote the tunes for him to play too, and for Nick to play, and, and etc. And it always seems like I'm writing tunes for Kendrick to play because he's one of my favorite drummers, and I've been playing with him since I was 19. Um, so in a way, yeah, I, I have these in, these instrumentalists in mind when I'm writing them, but it's not like they're the only ones who can play them, as Miles so ably demonstrates on sure. the record. Do you? That said, though, do you have some preference? For, well, I mean, it sounds like you've already answered this question to some degree for keeping uh, a, a kind of stable like orbit of people around you that you can go to well yeah i mean look obviously i would love to be able to get you know certain musicians on all of my gigs and have enough gigs <laughs> touring throughout the year that i can i mean you know when you have to compete against you know guys like terrence blanchard and, and herbie hancock who are hiring kendrick you know it's kind of hard to do right. but yeah i do you know it's pretty obvious if you look at my website and the past gigs that I've done, it's obvious that I'm calling the same people sure. over and over again just because I'm, if I'm comfortable working with them and I like the sound that they bring to this music. Um, but I'm not against discovering new people. I mean, I'm discovering, you know, playing <laughs> right. with people I've never played before. I don't want to sound arrogant. <laughs> I mean, who am I? You're not against plucking someone from obscurity. From obscurity, <laughs> like, say, uh, like, say, uh, Jonathan Blake. Right, exactly. <laughs> He's no, worth the poor guy. Yeah, I mean... You know, uh, it's a lot of times uh, I'll and I play a lot at this place called the Bar Next Door, La Lanterna, and it's kind of how I developed the repertoire for Fierce, and that is sort of my venue for playing with people I don't get to play with a lot or haven't played with at all or haven't played with in a long time. So that's a nice opportunity for me to, um, you know, hook up with people that I might not necessarily think of to call for these more orchestrated ensemble gigs. Does something as kind of goofy as the fact that Bar Next Door is tiny influence that it the, the people that you would call or the ensembles you'd put together? Well, yeah, I mean, definitely there is there is a very specific um, vibe and ambiance there and a very specific crowd. It's it's less musician nerds and more general public, but at the same time, most of the time you have people who are really listening and really um, go there just to hear music. I mean, it's not like a supper club, even though you can have delicious supper there. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's not... It's it's not necessarily a glamorous gig, so some people uh, it's harder to get certain people who aren't cool. <laughs> let's right. say, you know, you know, there's <laughs> there's some people who like, I, I could call for to play at you know wherever if it's a, like a listening club in a serious venue, even if it didn't pay a lot, and they'd be like, yes, 
but that if I, if I called it for bar next door, which is a really great gig and, uh, it pays relatively well and you get a great meal out of it and they might not like the idea that people are eating through the set. So, you know, maybe I wouldn't call them, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm not above calling it or beneath or above calling anybody for a gig. I mean, the worst they're going to say is no. And if someone called me for a gig and said, look, this is what it pays and this is what it is. You know, if I didn't want to do it, I'd say no, but I'd be flattered that they asked me. I mean, you know. Is there a is there a difference in the vibe between playing in places where the people are, you know, kind of just general listeners versus playing in where it's going to be mostly music students or other musicians? That kind of thing? Well, I try not to consciously approach gigs differently because I think whether someone is, is a, a super geeked out music, um, you know, aficionado, or if they're, you know, coming off of a long shift on the stock exchange and want to have a drink and listen to some music, I think they're still looking for a connection with the artist and to know the background of the songs, the story behind them. So I generally don't change my approach. I kind of have a, a kind of, you know, lovably dorky stage patter, <laughs> and it doesn't really change no matter what the crowd is, whether it's in, you know, Germany or, 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 Scotland or here or in Texas, it's, you know, I, I try to always be, <laughs> give a consistent experience. Will you say more about, uh, giving background, giving, uh, kind of program notes, so to speak, to the, to the music? How, how often do you do that? Why do you do it? How does it, how does it work for you? Well, I mean, when, with my own original compositions, I always do it. I always tell something about the song because, I mean, if people are hearing a tune for the first time, uh, I'll, uh, well, let's be honest. People like stuff that they've heard before. It's stuff that they know. That's why certain songs become top hits on the radio really quickly. It gets stuck in their head, and they know it, and they like to sing along. But if if it's a new song, and a lot of modern compositions tend to be uh, intellectualized, they need there needs to be something that people can grab onto. And I'm speaking for myself. If I'm going to hear a show... Um, you know, it could be by, you know, someone, I mean, for example, take my collaborator, uh, Miles Okazaki, who writes incredibly intellectually amazing music. And if I'm just listening to it without knowing the story behind it, a lot of times I might appreciate it in an intellectual sense, but I'm missing a part of the experience. So I think that, you know, it's, it is important to me to always give the story behind my songs. And I don't think it matters if you can hear all the sharp nine chords or not. And so I guess that leads naturally to the next point, which is that, I mean, for example, on this album, it's, it's very clear there are, in fact, stories associated yeah. with these pieces. So, I mean, I think you could say that uh, – I can't remember. Just just last week or the week before, there was someone who was on this show was talking about writing music, and they had asked their composition teacher, well, isn't it okay just to write a tune? You know, it doesn't have to have anything – uh, behind it, so to speak. And that person, this is a great anecdote, I can't remember any names. That person said, well, if you're not writing about something, then what's the point? <laughs> I think you could see the flip side of that argument, and you could probably make a valid case that there is a point. But it sounds like you're approaching it from the, uh, if not programmatic, then at least inspired by standpoint. Well, yeah. And, well, also, uh, sometimes the um, cart does come before the horse for my tunes. Because uh, a lot of times something will start out as a compositional exercise and then, and then it starts to develop a picture in my head. For example, a tune on the record, uh, called Into the Stars. It started out as, uh, you know, I was taking, uh, 
I was thinking about, I have this friend who's a great saxophone player named Mark Small who actually performed on Fierce. And uh, we were playing in a session one time, um, and uh, he said, you know, what if you could play, if you could like rearrange giant steps or you could play over giant steps, but and you could play all the same chords, but if you just listen to the rhythm section, it wouldn't sound like they're playing giant steps. So I was like, hmm. So I took Countdown and I tried to like isolate key centers and then change the bass notes and change the chord colors. I'm just going to um, mention for folks that these are two John Coltrane oh, compositions. Yeah, of uh, course. <laughs> folks should know, they're on the album Giant Steps. Folks should check that out if they haven't heard. So. Yeah, of course. sat down with the tune countdown which is usually you know such a breakneck technical exercise and i thought like what's what's a way i could take the general sound of the the moving key centers the moving tonalities if you will and make it sound very lush and um and uh, mysterious and haunting and then uh as the tune you know presented itself to me when i was done it you know i just started to think about all sorts of crazy personal metaphysical things (laughs) and um And one of them was, uh, you know, thinking about the process I was going through of grieving for my father, who had died uh, a few years before uh, I wrote the tune. And um, so then that's where, uh, even though that's not where the tune came from, that's where it ended up for me. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, so you've kind of attached... I mean, an entire lifetime's worth of emotion to something that started out in a totally other. Yeah, place. in a total, in a to- as a total intellectual exercise. <laughs> and so now, when you play it, uh, do you find that, as a matter of course, because you you have attached this to it, that it it takes you somewhere else emotionally than it would have? You know, this tune particularly often goes in many different ways. I mean, again, thinking about you know dealing with with grief of the loss of a loved one, it's not a mournful tune at all, and it's not like a super sad elegiac tune. And, and in fact, the tune, that tune on this record would be Brother Gabriel. Right. But uh, but it, it's in fact like more reflective of the journey that we go through uh, through life, and then and then what might happen to us, if anything at all, afterwards. I want to ask you about uh, about Brother Gabriel too, because uh, I think we both share a love for the person who uh, who inspired the tune, uh, <laughs> Peter Gabriel. And uh, here comes the flood, a tune, um, the tune kind of underlying this that many people know from Peter Gabriel's own records, but is also there's also a ridiculous version of it on Robert Fripp's Exposure that people should uh, should check out if they yeah. haven't heard it. But I wanted to ask you about uh, just about the first of all talking kind of at a at a basic level about the inspiration for the tune, and then about uh, the you know the process of kind of adapting music from other places
Right. Well, I, I tend to, I find that I went through a period around between 2006 to 2008 where I was writing most of my music this way, where there was something I really liked in another song, and um, and Shiver Song is also was also written this way, but it came from a very different uh, source. Uh, where I, there was something that I really liked in a song, and I wanted to get at that feeling or that sound or idea, but in my own way. And uh, I wrote Brother Gabriel in 2005 or 2006 when I, I was dealing with some really rough, <laughs> sort of rough things going on in my head. <laughs> sure. And um, and I was listening to a lot of Peter Gabriel's music because there's something about his voice I find that's, that while, while not like, I mean, people will argue, all right, who was the better Genesis frontman? Okay, was it Peter Gabriel or Phil Collins? And and you know, I, I enjoy both periods of Genesis, not to geek out into prog rock too much here, but... Because I will follow you there, and the, this show, the jazz part of this show, will end. <laughs> if we're going to well, go down the prog rock path, okay. Well, we'll we'll, we'll bring back. <laughs> well, okay, because <laughs> believe me, yeah, you yeah. are on friendly territory. Okay. If we're going to have that discussion. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I always thought that, like, you know, Peter Gabriel's voice was not necessarily the most virtuosic, and um, but there's something really raw and emotive about it, and particularly about "Here Comes the Flood," and then another song from. Um, from the album he did uh, called Up, there's a song called The Drop, which mm. is it's got a similar vibe but a little bit more delicate. Um, and there, there's something about the, what he's able to do to his voice that just it just like it's like fingernails on the chalkboard of your soul. I think, and it, I used to listen to that over and over again, those two songs, and then also one uh, called um, The Washing of the Water oh, mm. from. Which was also covered by a good friend of mine, Doug Womble, on one of his albums. Oh, that's right. He yeah. does a really great he version does a great of it. version of that, yeah. yeah. But, uh, and to me, the most emotional part of that song was this one chord progression. Well, well to the two chord progressions, right? And I, and I, and I basically lifted them verbatim. I stole them. There's one, um, stranded starfish have no place to hide. That particular chord pro- progression, and then the harmony behind that lyric, and then the harmony behind um, there's no. I forgot the lyric. In pretending, and to me, uh, not thinking necessarily about the lyric, but thinking about the sound of his voice over that harmony, it just got to me. So, uh, I sat down with those two starting points, and then I came up with um, what I thought was a very simple melody to be played in a very uh, vulnerable sort of way, mm. and. Ended up with, uh, well, I sprinkled a little bit of, of uh, Stevie Wonder in, at the very end. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, the, the ending of the bridge owes a, as it borrows a tiny bit from Creepin'. Uh, but um, not the same vibe at all, but I just no. love the sound of oh, man, yeah. the one harmony going to the other. <laughs> but anyway, I stole from those two fine gentlemen <laughs> and somehow ended up with this tune. So Stevie Gabriel? Stevie, Peter Wonder? Stevie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful Gabriel. <laughs>
that's a lot to have behind a piece of music. So it has not only all of these musical antecedents, but it has all of these uh, kind of life uh, biographical antecedents to this tune. So when yeah. when you now assemble a group of people to play this music, how much, if any, of that is important for any of them to know? How much do you tell them? How much do you set up the circumstances of any particular song? For well, it's funny because when I wrote this tune, I really was too shy ever to, about playing it. You know, I wasn't, I didn't really want to play it. I was kind of like, I don't even know if it's any good. It's maybe it's kind of cheesy. Right. <laughs> maybe the harmony's cheesy or something. Because you know, the harmony is very simple. Uh, rhythmically, metrically, it goes, it, it's pretty complicated. There's, it goes through a lot of meter changes. But I think all in aid of the mel- melodic phrasing. But harmonically, it's very simple. Um, almost, you know, using pop kind of harmony. And I was really shy about breaking it out. But, um, when I did the CD release concert for Lucid Dream, I did it at the Jazz Gallery and uh, Aaron Parks was playing piano. You know, he was kind of, he's always, kind of interested in the in the pop rock aesthetic and um you know uh, in the rehearsal i just got out and said i don't know we play this through this what do you think and he was like man it's beautiful let's play this tune and that was the first time we played it in public and um i've played it a lot since then (laughs) a lot (laughs) let me tell you and it, it became it started to become something of an anthem to me for a while especially in 2008 i did like you know more seasoned musicians will laugh at this, but, you know, the longest consecutive tour I ever did was, you know, 42 days with only two days off. And, and um, and um you know, we ended with it every night, and it kind of became something for me. So uh, it was important for me to find the right version to put on tape. On tape. So I think that I finally got it, though. <laughs> So I think this is I can I can say that this is the definitive version finally after playing and recording it many times. You know, the story like that, the one that you just told and the fact that you've already said that you tend to talk to the audience about what's behind the pieces. I mean, to some degree this this kind of moves into a a terrain we might more expect of of a singer-songwriter for example. Where, I mean, in jazz tunes, you very seldom hear a jazz musician go up and say, I wrote this tune because I was, you know, I was struggling with depression. I wrote this tune during, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. It just doesn't seem to really come up in the jazz world. There's not that that sense of vulnerability or exposure, which I really like. I mean, that's what connects me to pop and rock musicians. Well, you know, I think it's a shame because I think that we, especially in New York, if we're playing at clubs like, you know, Smalls and... And uh, the jazz gallery and the standard, I think we're sort of assuming that everybody in the audience understands intellectually what's going on on stage and is coming th- here to see the, uh, the improvisation. Um, when in reality, most people are looking for a consistent experience from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. And, uh, and if once you realize that, then you can start to think of, okay, how can my improvisation support the experience of the tune? So then the tune becomes more important than the soloing, which is, which is, I think, the right way, at least for me. Uh, I think as musicians, we get so caught up in, in, um, vocabulary and uh, technique that we, we find ourselves impatiently wading through, you know, a melody that was composed as an afterthought to get to the solo. And, and I think that's, you know, I think that's why a lot of audience members who aren't jazz musicians might feel alienated. I see both in person and on on social networking that you seem to take in a lot of live music. And so, 
Uh, I mean, although I know you're also uh, obviously a, a dad uh, of a young child. So yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I am. That that, uh, that makes a difference, and, I, and I'm not afraid to let everybody yes. know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm one of those parents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me show you some pictures right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I wonder, as a, as a person who does take in a lot of music and who really goes to support the scene, not just to be, not just when you're playing, but also as a as a listener, do you feel like there are things you draw from? the experience of seeing other people perform that helps inform what you're doing, either through the positive example or through figuring out, well, I'm not going to do it quite that way. You know what? Well, first of all, I, I love going out to hear music. And it's, you know, I, I do spend a good portion of my day being um, a, a primary caregiver to my daughter. And that's just how my fa our family schedule works out. You know, my wife works in the mornings and she gets home in the afternoon and then I get to practice and go out to a gig or whatever. And if I'm not working, then, you know, I try to go out to hear music once or twice a week. I think it's important for me to remember that I'm still a musician sometimes, <laughs> especially during slow periods. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, I like to go out and support my friends and, and, and I also like to go and hear new stuff. And I like to balance my uh, listening what I take in between, you know, more straight ahead stuff and stuff that I know that I'm going to like, uh, or stuff that I'm, it's not necessarily in my comfort zone, but I should be checking it out intellectually. But I do find, and I hate to say this, I do find that I'm, most of the inspiration I get is to say, okay, well, this is really great, but I'm not going to do things this way. And mostly it has to do with stage presence. Like, I'm not going to just not announce between tunes or just mumble and go, um, so, uh, this next tune doesn't have a title, uh, but uh, I think uh, I wrote it like five years ago or something. And um, and then, you know, people are sight reading and it, and it falls apart and it sounds like a disaster. But then when the solos happen, it's really amazing. Right. And I, that's, and I realized like, okay, you know, I mean, maybe that, that guy definitely can play rings around me as far as solos, but I know that I, I don't want my shows to go that way. <laughs> yeah. And, and as far as variety of, of programming and... And also, man, I, I don't want to be that guy to say, I hate to come off, off as that guy, but man, I, I like hearing bands that groove, you know? I mean, you know, I, I could listen to a set where, you know, four out of the five tunes are really floaty, abstract, you know, but then give me that last tune that just is swinging or, or grooving or rocking or something. <laughs> give me, let me tap my foot for a little <laughs> bit. But I mean, beyond that, nitpicky sort of stuff i mean it's hard not to go out and hear music in new york city and be completely inspired and blown away by the level mm. of creativity and talent that's here i mean really it seems like there's an embarrassment of riches right now i mean people complain about the scene being tough and i agree it's a lot tougher now than it was when i first came i mean there are fewer clubs there are fewer gigs and there are more more dudes you know and dudettes than ever before but there are more people out there, you know, putting their stuff out there. And, you know, it's I will always go check it out as long as I live here. So, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, uh, you, I think you know me well enough uh, to know that this is a constant point that I'm harping on, this idea of the connection with the audience. And I feel like if I can do anything with this show, if I can get people to talk to the crowd, I'll feel like I've done – like my mission here on Earth has been yeah. fulfilled. Uh, yeah, because there really is something about uh, – th there's just some – there's some missing piece for me of an emotional connection to the artist most of the time when I go that I just – I notice that I miss. I mean I can really tell that it's 
that it's not there. And when it is there, I leave and I'm like transported because I feel like I've really – someone has really spoken to me in a real way. Well, you know, it, it, there are very few people who can pull off um, just getting up there and playing and let that letting that speak for themselves, especially, you know, people who are, you know, younger and not as experienced and seasoned. I mean, one example, and I will always bring his name up as an example for anything good because he's been an inspiration for me since I was 18 years old, is uh, Miguel Zenon. He doesn't need to say a single word when he goes and plays. It's just like, <laughs> bam, there it is. But, you know, for the rest of us mortals, um, I, you know, it's not enough to have the art be on a high level because people want an experience. I mean, unless you're okay with just playing to kids from the new school, and then in that case, it, you know, then just it's all about the music. I mean, really, it's mostly about the music, but also it's important for, as you say, for people to get invested in your art. They need to be invested in you as a person. And, um, you know, I, I'm always trying to figure out how I can make that happen with my music. So uh, fill in a, a blank for me, a, a phrase that I've heard many times that I've never actually known what it meant. What is, in fact, an artist diploma, and why does oh. someone get one? <laughs> well, it, someone gets one, well, for two reasons. One, you can put on your resume that you went to Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, most of the time, it's it's you're going to study somewhere, and you're not necessarily getting an accredited degree. You're just there for the study. And um, I uh, was... I was recruited into the artist diploma program at Juilliard by one of their the former graduating saxophonist was a is a very fine saxophonist and good friend of mine named Adam Nywood and he was I was in the middle of this long tour that I told you about previously and and uh, I got a voicemail from him and saying hey man um hey it's Adam Nywood yes yeah, so uh, <laughs> so uh, have you considered uh freakishly accurate I'm just going to say <laughs> Oh, I wish I could play like him, though. Man, he's a bad dude. <laughs> yeah, he but, is. But anyway, um, you know, he he said, you know, they're looking for people to audition for this next uh, class of the program, and you should consider it because you would be a good fit for it, um, you know, based on your level of professionalism and experience and where you are in life. <clears throat> and also, it, you know, you might get a lot out of it musically and um, 
you know, and get a lot of ex good experiences traveling and professionally a lot of good connections. So, you know, I, I sent in my, uh, I, I, I sent an email to, um, Mr. Carl Allen, who's the head of the program there. And, and he said, yeah, send me your tape. And I sent it in and then I auditioned and, you know, they accepted me. And, you know, it's interesting being 30 years old and, you know, going, deciding like, hey, I'm going to be back in school again. Only this time it's like not for a graduate, graduate degree. It's not for a doctorate or anything. It's just to go. Um, so it really, and especially at that time, my wife was expecting our first child. So it's like, am I, I'm going to be devoting a lot of time to, to this program when really time is going to be of a premium. But I, I knew that it would be, I, I, I figured, I took the gamble that it would be a great musical experience, and it paid off because it really was. You know, I mean, the ensemble was ridiculous. I mean, Miles and uh, Okazaki and then John Chin on piano and Luca Santaniello on drums and Jason Stewart on bass. I mean, those are all guys that I, you know, I got to know them and work with them, and I, I've incorporated them into my own gigs. I mean, John played with me at the Blue Note last summer, and he's played with me a lot of times, and Jason Stewart's played with me at St. Peter's and Miles, you know, all sorts of times. And, you know, we rehearsed uh, twice a week, and uh, we did a lot of touring and played a lot of gigs. Uh, and, um, you know, I played a lot of music there, and I wrote a lot of music for, in that situation. And so that was it. I got a lot out of it as far as uh, I think I improved a lot as a, as a writer and, and a player, you know. And um, I got to meet a lot of new friends, and I made some good connections, and I put Juilliard on my resume. Yeah. Are there ways that you were able to take that that period of intensive refocusing on your craft? Are there are there ways that you were able to to kind of continue that in your day to day life, even when you're not, you know, doing it under the tutelage of people at Juilliard? Did you find that it kind of built into you any other any new? Uh, practice or writing practice? Well, n not that way because I always have been pretty regimented about my practice and, and when I'm going to write music. But um, I think what it did was give me a vehicle and a bunch of deadlines sure. <laughs> to get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I mean, it wasn't so much this program, I mean, when we were in it, it wasn't so much that we were getting um a lot of direction per se as we were getting opportunities to explore stuff on our own and sort of like guidance from uh from the directors who were uh uh mr allen and then uh kenny Barron and and rodney jones it was more like we would bring in stuff that we wanted to do as a band and then they would you know offer constructive encouragement along the way so it was more like just having a laboratory that didn't have the pressure of, you know, bringing in a hundred people at the door, <laughs> you know? Right. And, um, and, uh, didn't have to worry about like getting people together for a rehearsal and, you know, people always checking their watches and feeding the meter and whatever. Like we knew that we were going to be there for two hours twice a week. So we all brought in tunes, whether they were half finished or whatever. So it was nice to have an, a no, a no pressure, um, marinating environment. Yeah. You mentioned before we started recording that you uh, just worked with your producer's hat on on a record. Can you talk yes. about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's actually the first record that I've produced that is not my own. I mean, uh, Maybe Steps was produced by Mark Free at Positone, but um, Fierce and Lucid Dream and Transatlantic Collective Traveling Song, uh, I produced all of those. Well, actually, Tran Traveling Song was co-produced by Michael Janish. Um 
who is a bass player in London and the uh, proprietor of the Whirlwind Recordings label. And actually, this album that I'm speaking of is uh, is coming out on Whirlwind Recordings, and it's a um, sort of a relaunching of the of the career of um, my good friend Nick Vianas, who I told you about, trombonist, trump- trumpet player, and singer. So, you know, we'd worked together so much, and he asked me, he's like, hey, man, um, I was wondering if you would be interested in producing my record. So I was like, sure, of course. So, uh, you know, I got together with him. He sent me some music, and, you know, I gave my opinions on things that we could change or do differently uh, in the arrangements or whatever. And, and uh, you know, I gave him advice and helped him set up uh, the rehearsals and whatever, and then just basically was his... Uh, ears in the studio so he could focus on just playing and what was that experience like when it wasn't your own music that you were dealing with when you weren't qu- quite as uh, intimately on the inside as you might have been in your own well I, I think not so much the fact that it wasn't my music but the fact that i wasn't playing and mm. i didn't have to worry about playing then i could just be although i do play on a few tracks but not very much um i could focus mostly on listening so I mean, that was uh, my ears. It was like I was hearing so much more. I was thinking, I, I didn't remember hearing any of this sort of stuff on Fierce. But, uh, you know, there it is. Is there a value, do you think, to having an outside producer on a project? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, and I want to take some time to talk about specifically about Mark Free and what he's doing at Positone because, you know, I mean, this record, it's not just, I mean, yeah, I had a clear vision behind it. I wanted to tell some personal stories with these songs that I've been accumulating, but also, you know, he had a lot to do with it as far as, you know, taking what could have been a very uh, rambling um, vanity project and making it into something that's, you know, market friendly and radio friendly and, you know, something that's (laughs) capable of of turning a profit. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think that, uh, I don't know, have you ever ever check out that, that, thing that he wrote in Peter Hum's column about yeah I mean he has a lot of really but tell people about it just to uh... well basically he has his um, I, I think he calls it like jazz manifesto or something where he talks about the mindset of a do-it-yourself artist versus um, versus you know somebody who has to go through a gatekeeper to the industry and um, and he has a few points uh, that artists that might not be readily readily apparent to artists. <laughs> you know, I mean, artists might not necessarily think that. Why should I keep these tunes? You know, under nine minutes. Right. I, I want to have five choruses. You know, on a Cherokee for every single solo. <laughs> right. But you know, I think there's definitely a value in having somebody there who's like, you know, bringing you back to earth, saying, you know, look, it's not all about you. <laughs> Someone is putting up money for this thing, you know, and they want to make it back. <laughs> sure. And people are going to have to listen to this. And after how many courses are they going to just hit, you know, forward to the next track? <laughs> right. You don't want them to listen to three tracks and then shut it off. <laughs> you know? It's interesting because uh, I have to say it's. It's quite possible that the idea of making a profit on a record has never before been broached on the jazz session in oh, five yeah, years. Well. <laughs> so, so say, say something about that. Say something about the actual the the business model or the business plan that accompanies this record and how. how well, I mean, I, I mean, look, I'm just the artist, so I can't. I don't really want to speak out of turn as far as uh, Positone and their what their financial position is right now. On maybe steps. But I do know that I, having self-produ- I self-produced my first album, and then after it came out in 2006, and then in 2010, I had finally made all the money back. Wow. Um, 
but that was a lot less than people are spending now. I mean, in those days, I mean, that was before everybody started hiring publicists, you know, and that was when these, these guys were just getting off the ground and, you know, and I did all the publicity myself for that album. Um, and, uh, the costs were a little bit less than, I mean, quite a bit less than what, what you would spend now if you were launching, uh, your first album and want to make a splash. But maybe sure. that's why I didn't make a splash for that <laughs> album. But anyway, I mean, the point is right. As an artist, you want to keep making these things, right? And unless you're going to just keep pouring your own money into the bottomless pit, uh, you got to have to ask somebody else to put up some money and they're not going to want to throw their money into a bottomless pit. So you got to figure out how you're going to, how you're going to make back the money to put towards the next one. You know, I mean, the idea is, uh, from what I understand is that, um, you know, you know, Mark said to me, like, look, let's, let's keep making these things. When we, when we get the, when we make our money back, then we put it towards the next one and the next one, you know, and I think they really believe in their artists and, um, and that's why they're, they're doing this. It's not because they're, they're sitting up in a, at a, you know, 30th floor penthouse in the Empire State Building, you know, because or on a sorry, tip it would be like yeah, floor, <laughs> right? <laughs> but on a stack of gold and just deciding to altruistically right, 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 make right. records. Yeah, right. no, I mean, you make records because you love the music and and you want to put the records out there. And what you need to put the records out there is money. And so then, you know, you put the first money up and then you put the record out and then the money comes back in slowly and then you start to be able to make the next record and then the next one, the next one. So, but you know, it's almost become a cliche that a CD is like an expensive business card yeah. these days. And I mean, so I really, yeah, it's funny that you have to spend like 10 grand to release a CD in order to get a $50 gig. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's, it has become such a, such a cliche or just such a piece of, of received wisdom that it's not possible to make money through recorded music in the jazz world. But it sounds like, I At think it's a lot case, more possible to make money possible. off of jazz records if you do it right than than it is off of pop records. Mm. I mean, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, records of major stars coming like Paul McCartney's record that just came out. I I don't want to even think about what the budget is on that and and who's how are they going to make all that money back? I mean, not on record sales. It's going to be, you know, a combination. I mean, sure, I'm sure his investors get a piece of his live touring right. or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I'm just talking out of thin air. But, you know, I think because, bless you, just you. because, uh, the scale of the economics is so much lower, you know, if you're, if you're active with your touring and you're smart that way, <clears throat> then, you know, that's where you're going to sell these things, not in stores. As <laughs> my statements from my distributor from Fierce come back every month, it's like, <laughs> oh, you had some, ret- some line charges from stores that are returning. So guess what? <laughs> you owe us money, you know, <laughs> like, oh, great. <laughs> I'm glad I put that record up. No, I'm glad I put it up. Um, but, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, you know, if you're selling them off of, off of live gigs. And sure. If, and, and, and the point of, for me, the point of making records is to get more gigs. It's because the, for me, the playing is where the thrill of it is. Yeah. Not in the documenting, in the playing. So, in that sense, it's possible to make it, you know, I mean, I'm not paying, gonna pay a mortgage off of selling CDs, but, you know, at least if I, if I sell a few hundred more copies of Fierce, buy Fierce, everybody, <laughs> then I can, you know, put it towards the next one, uh, you know. I mean, that's after the, the folks at Positone get sick of me and chuck me to the curb. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
can you uh, are you the kind of person who uh, even though this record you know only just came out in the last several months uh, are you already thinking of what the next one might look like yeah I am and I started to work on the music and I think I was talking to Mark and Positone about this and I think we're aiming to lay it down in mid to late October so and is this finally I ask every artist who comes on the show who mentions a new project before they define it is this finally the 80, 80 piece jazz studio orchestra meatloaf covers album yes have been <laughs> no not meatloaf it's gonna be it's gonna be covers of early genesis tunes like no, oh, watch, see, watcher of the skies and oh, you know man. supper's ready <laughs> the carpet oh, crawlers that would be fantastic i would love to hear all of supper's ready arranged uh, for some sort of improvising uh, instrumentation uh, well you know a lot of that record there's a lot of improvising on that yeah record. absolutely or at least instrumental playing i'm not yeah. sure how much of it is actually i think actually very little is probably probably yeah <laughs> But anyway, uh, back to your project. Do you have uh, some idea of what it might? Uh, yeah, look I mean, like? we I, nothing has been set in stone, but I'm starting to write music for like a three horn front line with oh cool with trumpet and trombone and, and alto. So, I mean, that's where my head's at right now. That's a lot of the sketches that I've been doing are are about that. Although you know, it's a long time till then, so. You know, these students might go through some metamorphosis or metamorphosi. Or <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I can't help you. Metamorphosis. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so who knows? But that's where my head's at. I mean, I would love to make... I mean, in my head, I would love to have a front line with a Jason Palmer on trumpet, who, who lives in Boston and I've played with uh, over the years many times, and, uh, and with my buddy Nick on trombone. You know, and 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 I would love to play. I, th- I think I'd like to do this with um, with uh, Rudy Royston. I played with him recently, and he's so swinging. And uh, maybe bring my buddy Mike Janish back over from London. And, uh, so I mean, we'll see what happens. But that's where my head's at right now. That's exciting. Uh, I mean, any of those gentlemen who are listening, you know, don't put it on your schedule <laughs> yes. just yet. <laughs> My guest is Patrick Cornelius. Uh, it's great to have you back. The new album is Maybe Steps on Positone Records, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks once again, and I'm looking forward to seeing you soon.
That's music from saxophonist Patrick Cornelius and his new album on Positone called Maybe Steps. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do join the show if you would. Thejazzsession.com slash join is where you go to become a member. And then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody!